Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. European contact with the indigenous peoples of the Americas has always been a rather one-sided affair. Disease, technology, and even social concepts like ownership made contact a tragic, often centuries-long decline for Native Americans. One instance, however, stands out for both how dramatic the narrative was and how quickly Europeans were able to subjugate the population, the fall of the Aztecs. We'll begin today by talking briefly about the pre-contact Aztec Empire and move into the early days of Cortez's expedition into Aztec territory. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101. I'm here with my brother, Ethan Blasky. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. How are you? Awesome. And today we're going to talk about uh, the conquest of the Aztecs. Yeah, Cortez and, Cortez and South America. Montezuma. Yeah, Montezuma. I love that name. I always have. You know what? I, I'm, I actually had to make a decision on that name because I've seen it written as Montezuma. Okay. As Moctezuma. Okay. Or as Montezuma. Huh. So Montezuma isn't necessarily the most correct one. Yes. It's going to be the one that I need to correct myself about the least. And it is technically okay. an accepted usage. <laughs> so that was the decision making process on that one. That's fair. Yeah. I won't mess up Montezuma as much as some of the other ones. Yeah. But they're, they're all... Basically, Montezuma is the English translation of uh, an Aztec word, which is okay. why that's kind of difficult. Or rather, instead of saying Aztec as in terms of the language, it okay. was actually a language called uh, Nahua. Nahua. We're going to run into a lot of problems today. Okay. Both in terms of the terminology that we're using for people, their languages, their names for themselves, the names that other people are giving them. Yeah. But also... Probably the most unique challenge to this topic over other topics that I've done so far is that we are treading some very shaky ground, my friend. Okay. Because anytime we're talking about uh, cultural and imperial subjugation of an entire group of people, we've got to be sensitive to a lot of different issues. Yes. And on top of that, we're talking about people from a little bit further back than we normally do. Okay. Not by a whole lot. Yeah. But usually when we're reaching a little bit further back in time, we're talking about people in in Western history. So kind of the tradition that we're sort of used to. Yeah. And there's usually, I'm not going to say that they're easier for us to understand, but there's a longer tradition in history of framing these people in a reference that's more easy or that's more simple for us to understand if yeah. that makes sense that so makes so yeah i got it we're, we're talking about the the early 16th century here okay which isn't any further back than we would go talking about say protestant reformation or talking mm-hmm. about uh, well i mean you and i did um the fall of constantinople yeah 
which in is the 15th century, which is the century before this. And we yeah. did a pretty decent job of kind of framing that in a, in a fairly understandable context. Yeah. There's been such a tradition. I shouldn't call it a tradition because it's, it's more of a, a neglect than a, a willful maliciousness. Although sometimes it has been willful. Yeah. Um, there's, there's just really been a, a long time where we've looked at people from uh, Central and South America and their contact with Europeans early on and not really done a whole lot to put it in a relatable or understandable context. And sometimes that, sometimes that's been an issue of willingness on the part of the historians that are looking at it. Yeah. And sometimes it's been convenient for the historians that are doing the work not to put them in a particularly relatable okay. context. Yeah. So, like I said, we're, we're dealing with a lot of tricky things here when we're yeah. talking about this stuff. But let's kind of just in in terms of kind of covering ourselves off, let's let's just be very clear that as much as Cortez can be looked at as a, a big villain in this story, as just a terrible person. Yeah. He had his reasons for doing what he did. Yeah. They may not be great reasons. Yeah. But when we consider the man in the context of his time and his civilization, they aren't um, unthinkable. You know, there, there's, yeah. there's a reason for his actions and there's a reason for him to justify the things that he's doing to his, to himself to be able to sleep at night with what he's doing well I, yeah absolutely i i think i think a lot of lay people nowadays have that have that problem of trying to frame historical actions in social context of today mm-hmm. where they would be like this is unacceptable you couldn't act like that but right. back in the in the the day what he was doing made perfect sense to mm-hmm. him in his in his world. Right. There's there's this swing generally in, in history as well as other social sciences between sort of a, a moral absolutism and a cultural relativism where it's okay. kind of like, do we do we judge actions based on their own merit, based on like our society, our mores, our understanding of right and wrong? Or do we basically say that there's no real right and wrong that's sort of a an abstract concept that humans project onto things and there's no such thing and 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 all of that right yeah and that kind of goes with uh with something called um moral relativism yeah well i Um, mean that's the difference between a a saint and a hero exactly you know and well yeah for sure and and i think that for, for me personally when looking at this stuff i i tend to be kind of one step this side of cultural relativism okay there's something called uh moral universalism which is yeah if there's anyone that's into philosophy they're probably not a huge fan of me at the moment but this is <laughs> this is how i choose to look at it there's something called moral universalism which is basically that even though different cultures uh have different ideas of right and wrong of what's appropriate of what's um polite of what's rude of, yeah. of you know it's just the whole spectrum of of behaviors and their uh and their corresponding uh, value judgments. Okay. Um, moral universalism basically says, okay, that's that's fine. That's all well and good. But listen, there's some stuff that's just like not, like everyone seems to think they're not okay. Yeah. Like murder's generally frowned upon. Yeah. So it's kind of okay to say like murdering a whole bunch of people is probably bad. It's, it's probably not good. And and it's and, and I think it's okay to kind of, you know, take a step back from the, the struggle to be, as progressive and as accepting as possible yeah and kind of look at certain things and go like okay i mean yeah okay it's a product of that this, that society that doesn't make it necessarily a good thing so Gen- genocide is still a no-no yeah let's let's uh let's call that a an x let's call let's put that in the con <laughs> category <laughs> yeah before we get too far mm-hmm. uh 
I know in that area there were the uh, the Mayans, the Incans, and the Aztec. Yes. But I don't really know their boundaries too much. Part of the problem there is that the boundaries are fairly fluid. And in fact, okay. we're kind of looking in an area where the, the Mayans and the Aztecs are bump, uh, bumping up against each other. Okay. A, a little bit. Not not a lot. Yeah. And and this actually this actually works out well because I kind of wanted to talk about what how the Aztec Empire uh, was was set up, how it was run, because we tend to think of empire as being fairly strongly centrally governed. You know, just ha- like to have a, a strong central figure, yeah. to have fairly uniform laws throughout. Maybe there's uh, aspects of uh, colonialism involved. Yeah, these Mesoamerican empires we're calling them empires for lack of a better term. They're really not set up the way that they're, that we're thinking of empire generally. Okay. The Mayan Empire is is further to the south. So basically, we're looking at the Aztec Empire in kind of southern Mexico, what 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 will eventually become Mexico. Yeah. Whereas the uh, the Mayans are further down in Central America as well as in kind of northern South America, you know, Colombia type area. Yeah. It's fairly large area. That yeah, that cover, is a pretty actually. large area. And then the Incans being further south, like Peru. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're quite far, farther down. Quite a bit farther down, I should say. So what you have with the Aztec Empire is there are a couple of strong central um, city-states that won a series of civil wars uh, about 100 years before the period that we're talking about. Uh, this, this war took place in the, the 1420s or so. Okay. And at the end of these wars, there was an alliance formed between three city-states uh there was uh oh and by the way i'm going to butcher so many names today oh they're yeah. so difficult <laughs> oh my goodness so there was a, a an alliance between uh the mexica which were the uh the people that were centralized in tenochtitlan which is what is mexico city today okay as well as two other uh city-states you have uh texcoco and you have uh Tlacopan. and those okay. three i think i've actually heard of all three of those I am amazed because I had not. I, I had only... I, I'm sure I had read them at some point in the context of the Aztec Empire, yeah. but to be able to name the the members of the Triple Alliance, I, oh, I could never have been able them. to do it. <laughs> Absolutely not. So they're all ethnically Nahua. That's the language that we talked about before. Yep. But, you know, it's, it's more of a city-state system, kind of like what you would have seen in Italy at about the same time, where okay. you have kind of strong um, central government uh, in, a, in an urban setting with quickly fading influence over the rural area around it. And then the borders between them being kind of fuzzy. Yeah. Right. And then you also have that on a macro scale where the people that the Triple Alliance are, are uh, exerting influence over kind of eventually are, are less and less um, invested in the, uh, in the empire at large. And you get to a point where there's people that are trailing off from the Mayans in the south and they kind of almost butt up against each other and not quite. Yeah. But you know, they probably have more in common with each other being so close together than they yeah. do their... Their central... Yeah, their respective empires that they're part of, yeah. supposedly. So really what you're looking at is a system of tributes, basically. So they have all these little states that they've conquered through... I, I, they've either conquered through the Civil War or they've or they've pledged allegiance after the Civil War. Okay. Where the way they split it up was that the Mexica took two-fifths of all tributes uh the texcoco took two-fifths and then the tlacopan took one-fifth because they were by far the weakest of the three big powers so they split it up that way and kind of administrated things out of tenochtitlan 
and that's how they ran everything for about a hundred years or so and throughout that time they're kind of expanding bringing more people in that are paying tribute to them they're um kind of forming a loose legal structure and that's based on the Nahua religion Nahua mores but isn't like super strongly uh enforced okay really what you're looking at is there's going to be a a loose framework of laws that everyone's kind of subject to but a lot of it has to do with tribute to the triple alliance and then the rest of it's going to be more locally executed okay um now is it is it close to a feudal system in that way like what what would closer to a uh, it's closer to a federation but an extremely loose federation okay so what services would the would the centralized city cities provide to the outlying members? It's essentially a protection racket. Okay. I'll be straight with you on that one. I mean, there's there's lots of... Even today, you'll see very cynical people say that the only difference between organized crime and the government is uh, that one's got the law on their side, which I think is completely ridiculous. That's a, but that's a hard standpoint. It's but... the kind of thing you see on certain bumper stickers. Yep. And, okay, so in that way, in it case, is it case, is kind of close to a feudal system uh, protection to, for. Yes and no, because I I mean, I suppose that's not unreasonable to uh, to compare it to, except that these outlying cities aren't necessarily even pledging armies to the centralized system. Okay. It's the fact that the Triple Alliance is in and of itself so strong that none of these other states can actually stand up to them in any way. Okay, so. Uh, because yeah this is a this is a fine distinction that we're getting into but with a feudal system essentially the idea with a feudal system is that none of the states that are involved are actually strong enough on their own to present an absolutely secure uh, military presence yeah but that there is a force that's uniting them that can at any point in time raise enough troops through the feudal system that any one rebelling uh, rebelling group or even several rebelling groups would have no chance of actually successfully rebelling as well as that the central system can always raise enough troops to protect all members of the feudal system from outside threats okay that makes sense there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship going on yeah right whereas with this system the the, the money constituent flows up. members, yeah, it really does. The constituent members, some of them do provide troops, yeah, um, but the uh, the militaries of the three uh, main alliance members are so strong that there's really no added value from the tributary states. Mm-hmm. They're simply under the thumb of the uh, of the alliance and and more or less forced to offer up these uh, these tributes. Yeah, so very strongly centralized now. You said they have a very strong military. Um, did they have a road system or anything like that? Like, how did they mobilize their military yeah, quickly did, and effectively? They did have roads. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they were... Uh, I don't know what... I didn't get a ton into their road system. Uh, from what I understand, they're they're not they're not terribly wide because everyone is... Like, all, all troop movement is going to be on foot. Yeah. And it's going to be dirt roads. But they're very carefully cut and they're fairly well maintained. Yeah. Because there is constantly this flow of goods and wealth yeah. from the tributary states into the capital. So, I mean, getting around isn't really that much of a problem. Okay. You're going to run into certain places that are absolutely more difficult than others. Yeah. I mean, this area of Mexico is very hilly. Like, it's, it's, it's quite okay. rocky. And 
Tenochtitlan itself, Mexico City, is actually like in this it's valley. It's a crater, right? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, a crater. meteorite crater. That's right. Yeah, and and at the middle of the crater is a is a lake, and okay. Tenochtitlan is actually on this island in the lake. It's a fairly large island. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, the whole okay. So the word uh, Aztec, actually, interestingly, interestingly enough, is anachronistic. They never would have called themselves Aztecs. Okay, it's based on a probably mythic origin city from Nahua uh, mythology called Aztlan, A-Z-T-L-O-N, or sorry, L-A-N, and that's where they get the name from. There was probably never ever this city, but the Mexica people specifically had this prophecy that they were a people that were destined to wander without a city until they saw a body of water that Mm -hmm. had a rock in the middle and that on that rock was growing a, a cactus and sitting on that cactus was an eagle. Was an eagle eating a snake. <laughs> the the flag of Mexico. The flag of Mexico. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's their origin story. Supposedly the Mexica people saw this and went, there it is. That's where we build our city. Oh, that's so cool. I had no idea that was the the origin of the Mexican flag. That is that's wicked. Yeah. And <laughs> uh so Tenochtitlan was actually founded in 1325. It's a fairly new city. Okay. Yeah. Considering the timescale that we're going to yeah. be talking about. I mean, we're all, all of this stuff that's about to go down with uh, with Cortez, we're looking at late 1510s, early 1520s. Basically the, the time between 1519 and 1521. So Tenochtitlan was not an old city, especially by European standards at yeah. this point. That's one thing that I always kind of was surprised about reading in terms of New World histories, where you don't think of... I don't know. Part of it is the is the uh, the perspective of of most of these stories kind of starting when Europeans get here. Yeah. But you don't think of a lot of this stuff actually having a start date that's like within the history that we understand as the the standard timeline of stuff. Yeah, you kind of think it extends back further than it does. Yeah, either either it happened while Europeans were there or it happened somewhere back in the mists of time. <laughs> Yeah. Which is absolutely not true, and it's a complete fallacy, and it's something you kind of have to work to, to break yourself of as yeah. a habit. It's 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 completely disingenuous. But, I mean, yeah, Mexico City was founded 1325. Okay. And it was enormous. By the time that Cortes got there, it was easily one of the biggest cities in the world, if not the biggest. Oh, wow. The only European cities that could maybe give it a run for its money were Paris venice and constantinople constantinople was almost certainly larger yeah keep in mind that is a city that has been there for i mean we're talking like a thousand years bc yeah it's it's been there forever that's always been a city yeah and it was vastly expanded under the romans yeah and like we discussed it was the the trade center for the world it's it's the crossroads of the entire eastern hemisphere yeah so you know, for Constantinople to be bigger, yeah, that's pretty understandable. Tenochtitlan at this point in time is about five times bigger than contemporary London. <laughs> it's really hard to get numbers. Yeah. Because this is another theme that we're going to be running into a lot. When it comes to numbers of Native Americans, they don't get counted. No. They don't get counted very much at all. Uh, I've seen variations between 200 and 350,000 people. This is also a planned city, so all of the roads are laid out in a grid structure. Oh my god. There's causeways that uh, that the Spaniards would say are wide enough for ten horses to walk abreast. 
There were aqueduct wow. systems bringing in water there were, uh, from Chapultepec. There were uh, causeways to the mainland so that you didn't have to just bring everything Yeah, I was about boat. to ask about, about bridges. Three main causeways coming in across the lake. There were massive temple structures. There were huge palaces. Yeah. This is not a small city. Yeah. This is a major center. And as I said, at that point in time, if you were some sort of alien coming down to Earth in the year 1500 and you went where is the center of civilization at this point this is a major contender yeah and for good reason so yeah there was actually like an official city planner that was a a highly sought after like a very prestigious office and you know for Tenochtitlan like for for a European to come and look at that uh it was it was mind-boggling oh yeah they had never seen anything like it We'll come back to those first impressions in a while, obviously, but I thought I'd just kind of talk a little bit about what we're looking at in terms of the Aztec Empire. Yeah, absolutely. They're an incredibly religious people. They've got a, you know, it's a standard polytheistic religion. It's a pretty complex one, too. Very right? complex. It's got a, a very rich mythology. It shares a lot in common with other uh, Mesoamerican peoples at this point in time. So you'd see a lot of similarities to Mayan religions, for example. Yeah. But also a lot of the smaller people that are kind of in between them. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's got its own unique uh, aspects to it. Uh, I wanted to talk really quickly about the issue of sacrifice in religion. Okay. Because I think this is one of the biggest uh, misconceptions about Mesoamericans, which is that there's this idea that there's some sort of incredibly brutal people for the number of human sacrifices they offer as part of religious ceremonies. Yeah. I'm not going to stand here and defend ritualistic murder. That's insane. Um, <laughs> don't do that. But at the same time, it's very, very hypocritical for Europeans at this point in time coming across to look at the number of people being killed, you know, in the middle of cities, like it's some sort of spectacle <laughs> as as some sort of hallmark of savagery. Because yeah. if you go to the middle of Paris, you are going to see executions constantly yeah. or the middle of London or the middle of yeah. Venice. any European city. You're seeing people killed for their crimes. Not to mention witch burnings or anything like that of mm-hmm. a religious execution. Exactly. You know. We are very close on the heels of the Protestant Reformation here. Okay. So uh, we've already been through a lot of the witch trials that we're going to see in okay. Europe. But you also move into some of the um, uh, some of the Inquisitions, some of yep. the counter-reformations that saw extremely violent reactions to various reformations that isn't really going to end until uh the treaty of westphalia yeah. at the end of the 30 years war so you've got <laughs> another 150 years of strong religious violence yeah you know you can't i again i'm not defending either of the players that are involved in this but i really do want to point out the hypocrisy of one or the other uh looking at the other civilization and going this is barbarous how could they stand to let that happen yeah when uh that happens every single day at home yeah. And especially for the Spaniards that are coming across because, well, we're, uh, we're a couple of... The Inquisition was brutal. We're a couple of decades into the, uh, into the Inquisition at this point. So this is probably a good time to switch over to Spain and talk about what Spain looks like. Yes, before Aztec, uh, Before Aztec contact. Spain has been killing it recently. They're doing really, really well. Yeah, they're, they're super rich. They got a lot of boats. They've, they've recently risen to prominence on the European stage by uh, uniting several smaller kingdoms yep. within it, uh, especially the um, the marriage of Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile yep. in 1469. 
that united uh, Spain more or less, not completely politically, but administratively, yeah. religiously, uh, economically. Well, I mean, I mean, with with England going over to Protestantism, they just became the church's darlings, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The church loved them. They um, they began the Spanish Inquisition in 1478, yeah. which does a couple of things. Number one, it makes them look really good to the church because they're like, look at us and how pious we are. Yeah. Um, but number two, it ends the, the uh, medieval Inquisition, which I'm not sure if you're as familiar with it. I'm not. The medieval Inquisition is what we're talking about when we're looking at witch trials and some okay. of the uh, pre-Reformation heretics. Okay. So it was like... It was run directly by the church. Okay. What that does is it takes the control of the Inquisitions out of the hands of the church, further strengthening the Spanish the throne. Exactly. Okay while still looking extremely devout to the church to the church okay and frankly taking some you know they're spending resources that now the church no longer has to which is not a bad thing as far as the papacy is concerned yeah it was a strong move for them politically yeah Um, and you know i I don't want to spend too much time on it but the inquisition was not really as bad as a lot of people think i mean they did a lot of inquisitioning then if you look at the I, I mean, again, we're talking about relative terms. If you look yeah. at the popular conception of the Inquisition, you would think that, uh, you know, hundreds of people were being burned at the stake every every week. And that's yeah. not true. No. I mean, yeah, dozens of people were killed over the, over the length of the thing, maybe even hundreds by the time you're done with it. Uh, I haven't looked into specific numbers in a long time, but I believe in the first decade of it, something like six people were burned. Like, it's not... Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not... It's not really quite like what we're wow. thinking it's going to be. <laughs> It gets worse. It gets worse further on down the road. But at at its inception, the Spanish Inquisition may have actually saved a lot of people from the medieval Inquisition, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, now, another fun fact, it didn't end until the 1830s, officially. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it went on a long time, but I didn't, I didn't know it was quite that long. I mean, they stopped with the auto de phase and whatnot, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, it was it was supposed to root out the Moors, right? That was the original For the intent. most part? Yeah, that was the original intent. I, there had been a Moorish presence in Spain for, uh, I believe it's time. over 700 years at this yeah. point in time. And under the unification of, of Spain with uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, they made a final push uh, to end the Reconquista, the, re, the, the reconquering of Spain. Yeah. And they managed to do so in 1492. They, they expelled the last of the Moors. Okay. So... With that, they got uh, they got rid of Islam completely from the uh, from the Iberian Peninsula, and in the same year, they actually outlawed uh, Judaism. I yeah, I knew about that one too. Yeah, which again, uh, there's there's a lot of things that I want to put disclaimers on. Yeah. Um, basically, they told anyone who was Jewish that either they could leave Spain or they could convert to Catholicism. Yeah. And at that point in time, the Inquisition sort of shifted gears into. Uh, rooting out what they called crypto Jews, which were people that claimed to have converted, yes. uh, but still secretly practiced Judaism in private. Yeah. So Spain is clearly going for a a strong image as far as the church is concerned. They're trying really hard for a. I wanted to say something other than cultural purity, but that's the best way to put it. Just just yeah. because that's a kind of a. Uh, it's a charged word. Yeah, pur- purity is a very charged word. Absolutely, that's yeah. a that's not one you always want to bring up. But it's it's true. They were looking to be as Catholic a state as you could possibly be. Yeah. And 
at this point in time, even in France, you've got people that are pushing for reforms. I yeah. mean, a lot of the the heresies that they were putting down originated in France. Yeah. So the, France doesn't really have a squeaky clean uh, image as far as as yeah. far as Catholicism goes. Spain has just managed to get rid of the two other Abrahamic religions in one year. <laughs> I mean, after a long struggle with the Moors, but. They're, they're definitely looking strong as far as the Pope is concerned, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, they're hoping is going to turn around and reward them. And eventually it will. Uh, we're not going to stick really with the, the history of Spain too much. But further on down the line, when they're trying to figure out what to do with the new world, this image as a, as a very strong Catholic state is going to help Spain a lot yeah. as far as the Pope is concerned. So we have Spanish ships active in you know, around the Horn of Africa. Uh, we have them in the Indian Ocean at this point uh, exploring. We have uh, expeditions beginning that are looking to circumnavigate the globe. Magellan yep. is just getting yep. going at this point in time. You know, the age of exploration is upon us at this point. Yeah. Uh, we had our good buddy Christopher Columbus in 1492. Yeah. Doing his thing, I guess. Hey, Chris. I'm not a fan. No. I think I've mentioned this before. Yeah. <laughs> He's a real bad guy showed up the island and they were like oh hey there's visitors let, let us welcome you with drink and food and promiscuous women and he was like hey this is cool i'm gonna take some slaves and i'm gonna take them back to spain <sighs> thanks chris way to go way to way to represent oh also he thought that the world was five hours smaller around in diameter than it actually is but they had he had that stuff figured out pretty accurately before him. Yeah, he thought everyone else was wrong. And he went on his journey with not enough uh, provisions oh, to I've make it if it was the real distance. So the only reason that they didn't all die was because they happened to run into to a, con- into- a, con- a continent that yeah. they didn't know was there. <laughs> if there hadn't been anything between between Europe and the the Far East, they would have just starved in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Super good job, Chris. Way to go. Five hours is a lot. Like, uh, you're talking about lat- long- longitude. Longitude. Yep. So so five hours is like, that's, that's a ton. It's it's as if, well, it's basically the, dis- the, uh, the distance across the Atlantic Ocean, yeah. more or less. No, uh, a little bit more than the distance across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. So if you just take your globe, cut out the Atlantic Ocean, then overlap... Uh, the Americas and well, I mean, Europe we're and at, Africa a little we're bit. We're at GMT minus five here. Yes. And we're so. a third of the way across. <laughs> Cut out us to London. Yeah, pretty much. Anyways, we don't have to stick on that guy for yeah. too long because I'm just going to get angry. <laughs> Man, they need to get rid of Columbus Day. I'm not, we're, we're not even American. It doesn't really bother me that much, but that's not a guy you want to have a day for. Find a better guy. <laughs> There's so many good guys out there to have a day for. Shackleton. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was not American. I just like his name. And also, he wasn't that nice of a guy either. I just like his name. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Anyways, sorry. Um, so, a couple of things, uh, a couple more things that I wanted to mention before mm-hmm. we move on. Uh, they did have a couple of small forts in the West Indies at this point. So they had a uh, they had a governor of Cuba. There was a presence on Hispaniola. Okay. Hispaniola is uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic today. Okay. Those two nations are on the island of Hispaniola. Yeah. So they had a presence in the uh, in the Indies fairly soon after Christopher Columbus. So 
when we're talking, you know, this this time period of the fifteen like about fifteen twenty, those are already in place. Spain has yeah. settlements there. But I did want to mention kind of the role of Christianity in the Age of Discovery, um, specifically the problem that it that it presents with Native Americans, which is that they didn't expect there to be any more people in the world. Yeah. The Bible never specifically says there shouldn't be any more people in the world, but we've got this issue where there is a giant flood that kills everybody except Noah and his three sons. Yeah. And then there is a tradition that the three con- the three known continents of the world, uh, Europe, Africa, and Asia, yeah. descend from the three, so- uh, from the three, three sons son- of Noah. Yeah. Uh, when you add in another whole continent, where did all those people come from? And how did they get there if no one's ever been able to sail that ocean before? It's a problem. rut And so there are debates over whether or not they're actually human. Yeah. There are debates over whether they are a lost tribe of Israel that had wandered so far from civilization that even the flood didn't get to them. Yeah. And what the implications of that would be, namely... Are they, because they're a a pre-flood civilization, are they then wicked in their ways? Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of weird theological problems that come up there. Yeah. So, you know, what, how how to treat these people becomes a bit of an issue. And they get around it with something called the Spanish Requirement of 1513. Okay. And the Spanish Requirement is basically an extremely complex legal document that's sorted out by Ferdinand and Isabella to deal with exactly this problem. What what do we do with these people? What do we do with this new land? What do we do with these new people? How do we handle this? And they consulted with lots of lawyers, lots of priests. They consulted with the Pope. And they decided that what they needed to do was to announce to these people that they are... Anyone going to the New World, they have to announce to them that they are emissaries of the King of Spain. Okay that this land is now officially his by order of the pope who is you know if you if you work it out god said that saint peter was the you know the the head of all men yeah and his descendant the current pope has decreed that these lands belong to the king of spain so you have two options you can either declare your fealty to the king of spain yeah and convert to catholicism yeah or you can understand that refusing to do so is grounds for declaration of war so basically all they're doing is going well uh i don't care who these people are either they join us or die and the pope is on board with this yeah oh i should probably mention the spanish requirement only requires that they read this to the people in spanish oh that's that's the idea being that if they if they actually want to understand the words and they pay attention closely enough they should be able to understand at least the spirit of the words through divine intervention. Think Pentecost when the apostles are given the gift of tongues. Okay. Or think in Pocahontas where Pocahontas magically understands John Smith. Just like that. It's about <laughs> as magical as Disney. Okay. So, needless to say, often they did not subjugate themselves to the king of Spain. Bam. But from a legal standpoint, they were fine. Because okay. the lawyers worked out the, the proper declaration. You can find text of it. The whole thing. And morally speaking, the Pope said they were fine. Okay. So anyone who refused to accept the dominion of the King of Spain was not only in direct contravention of the Pope's wishes, but were also, by definition, not Catholic 
and therefore to kill someone that was not in a state of grace and as far fallen as these people when being offered the opportunity for salvation was not in in and of itself a mortal sin. There's a lot of mental gymnastics happening. Okay. Yeah, no, I know. You're looking really uncomfortable right now. I don't blame you. Okay, okay. And this is a this is a this is going to be a sticking point for a lot of what's going to come up because the information that's coming back about these indigenous people is bad. It's not yeah. good. They don't understand them. Uh, they have no way to understand them, really. Yeah. They believe that they're cannibals. They're not almost universally. Yeah. There's very, very, very little uh, evidence of any cannibalism, at least in in North and South America. Yeah. You do, like, when it comes down to, like, actual historical cannibals, it's almost always uh, incidents of extreme desperation. Yeah. There are, or sorry, there were um, certain tribes in Polynesia, so, like, the the Southwest Pacific kind of thing. Um, That's that's where I had heard that cannibalism like at one point existed was like yes south asia yeah in the that's, that's islands true. over there that's true but that's not something you're really going to see with the incas aztecs mayans okay. like any of the any of the north and south american <clears throat> ones it, it's it's almost impossible to find any records of actual cannibalism i was under the impression that in some sacrifices the heart would be eaten now that I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. I don't know for sure. I've heard similar things that it's been used um, ceremonially. Yeah. However, I also got the impression that that was anachronistic as well. Okay. Um, I, I because there, there's also a big problem where Europeans think that indigenous people are really dumb. Yeah. And because of that, sometimes they refuse to ascribe things like symbolism or simile or metaphor to them okay or uh nuances of language they believe that they always speak their mind exactly as it is yeah they believe that uh, what, what what was what's that phrase from like the 20s and 30s are you thinking of noble savage noble savage yeah and and that's that's a thing that's going to come up a little bit more later that <laughs> the idea that somehow in your most natural state you're also in a state of grace that you can do no wrong that's not quite what we're dealing with here no it's more of a it just reminded me of that 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 simplicity i they can't lie because they're right but it it is kind of stemming from a similar place of uh naivete that if they're not european how could they be civilized yeah how could they be intelligent um you know these people don't even have the wheel what are they you know or or you know they don't extensively work metal how could they possibly be as civilized as us yeah when in reality I mean, we talked about Tenochtitlan already. I was going to say, with a city that advanced, like... These people are incredibly intelligent. They're incredibly capable on on numerous fronts. There's nothing really here. Again, if we talk about that alien coming down, he'd probably land in, in London, look around and be like, oh, God, these people are so backwards and savage. Yeah. I'm going to go find out where the real action is at. And go over to Mexico City and be like, this is a little bit better, I guess. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's there's so ma- there's only so many centers in the world that that are actually going to look better than Tenochtitlan at this yeah. point in time. There's really not many. Yeah, I don't know enough about China to say specifically at this point in time how they would stack up. Yeah, that's the only center I can really think of that might look more culturally advanced. Yeah, but we digress. The reality of it is that they were looking at these people and saying. 
we would be doing them a favor by imposing our culture on them. They are not saved by the grace of God, and so it's our duty yeah. to spread Christianity to them. Mm-hmm. And they're so different from us and appear to be so in touch with nature that they must be at a more naturalized state and therefore less civilized state. And that makes them maybe not less than human, but certainly less than European. Okay. And that was used as a justification for a lot of things that that does not justify. Mm -hmm. So that's something to kind of keep in mind as we move forward when we're looking at the mindset of the Spanish and uh, Cortez in particular okay uh, as we move through this story so i think this gives us a pretty good platform to work off of yeah uh so why don't we stop here take a quick break and when we come back we'll talk a little bit more about cortez himself okay we're back on hi 101 here with ethan hey hey and we're going to talk a little bit about uh hernan cortez what a guy what a guy. I don't want to go over his whole... He was born in blah, blah, blah. He, he was born in the Castile region of Spain. Okay. Good for him. The biggest thing with Cortez was that he was from a family that, you know, it was a good name, but not a lot of money came with it. So he had to kind of make his own way okay. very early on. Yep. And at the age of 18, he moved to uh, Hispaniola and was living there. He had a small farm there. He he grew up very much in the new world. Okay. So like as soon as he could, he moved. I didn't know that. That's and cool. Yeah, so it was it was very much a, a part of his life that uh, that he be uh, this side of the Atlantic. He didn't feel a strong connection to Spain. He saw it as a as a place of opportunity. Yeah. Um, both for power and wealth, but also he was a deeply religious person. Okay. And saw it as a a life calling to 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 help spread the the uh, the message of Christianity to all these people who have never had the chance to hear it. Because, I mean, this is a point in time where, as far as the church is concerned, if you're not Christian, you're not going to heaven. And it doesn't really matter whether or not you've had an opportunity to hear the gospel. Yeah. There's no, there's no negotiations on that. Yeah. Um, Hard from, line. From what, I, from what I understand, there's, uh, there's been some opening up on, uh, in, in most denominations on the idea of if someone's never been told the good news... Can they still get into heaven? A lot of them are going, well, yeah, it's not as easy, but if you're a, a good person, it'll yeah. work. Yeah. Anyways, off topic once again. Now, in Hispaniola, would they have had much contact with the Aztec people? Like Not with the Aztec specifically. So in in the Caribbean, most of those islands are very heavily populated, but pretty much each island has its own people. Okay. On a space like that, Given that amount of time, things are going to homogenize one way or the other. Yeah. Either one dominant group is going to conquer all the others, or they're going to work together in close enough proximity that... They'll blend. Yeah, exactly. You get a a mixture of various cultures. So he had close contact with indigenous people on Hispaniola. Okay. But he also had his own farm kind of thing. I mean, and it's it's worth noting that the Spaniards had... they, They had a unique... Uh, relationship with the indigenous people on one hand they had no problems intermarrying which is kind of unusual for early european explorers okay on the other hand they had no problems making them into slaves so you know it take your pick like it's 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 all over the place with these guys which 
is is a tricky topic but i mean we're also before the advent of the you know what we think of as the african slave trade right yeah. like which is a very systemized very yeah. almost industrialized uh slave trade right yeah. and the idea of slavery or even indentured servitude is a little bit different than what we're thinking of mm-hmm. again not something to be necessarily lauded but it's not as really the same thing we're we're talking something a lot a lot closer to indentured servitude or or getting someone to uh work off a debt or work until uh, a reward is is earned rather than necessarily like this is this is a really bad servant rather than necessarily the the type of generational slavery that we tend to think of as associated with the um the 19th century in the uh, in the united states kind of thing yeah now with that intermarrying thing Mm -hmm. Would that just be to sort of save their own asses for taking their women, basically? Um, that's a complex question with no real good answer. There's no. I guess that's almost unfair of me. It's trying to frame the the Spanish well as worse than they might have been. I don't think so. I think it's a. I think it's a valid question. Yeah. Uh, I think the only problem with it is that it's such a broad question that you're basically painting them all with the same brush okay you you know that i think that's the real problem there is that it's got to be one or the other and it absolutely wasn't it was it was both at many many different times and many things in between the two yeah there were i i mean there there are how many stories of people even falling in love with slaves and then freeing them and marrying them or you know like the 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 potential for narratives there is so wide that yeah uh speculating is basically useless okay but no, it's it's still it's still a valid question, yeah. and I, I don't think it's it's necessarily only an issue of imperialism there. I think it's probably closer to an issue of practicality. I mean, you've got these people going over there for years at a time. They're probably going to meet somebody when they're there. Yeah, and to and to ban that is just to ask them to be sneaking around with it rather than yeah. rather than allowing them to live in. To, to do it openly yeah. yeah in any sense of normalcy really so but but there's also the idea that well okay and and this is the more cynical way of looking at it if you marry a, an indigenous woman and you have children you're going to insist that those children be baptized yeah that's true so it's a very it's a very slow method of cultural imperialism yeah and with forcing sort of the next generation to be that much more likely to be baptized so you know, I, I I don't know. I I try not to be too cynical over stuff like that because we are mm-hmm. still talking about human beings, and yeah. as much as their cultural frames of reference shift and change, and as much as their their morals and their religious beliefs change over time, there's a huge spectrum. Yeah, and and well, and and there's still there's still also people, and and people have a way of surprising you with how relatable they can be, even across thousands yeah. of years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's. I wish I could remember the guy's name. There was a there was a book written by this Roman emperor. I'll, I'll look it up afterwards because it's it's such a great passage. But it's just like him just talking about his life. It's it's very it's very um, it's a very lazy kind of book. Like there's no <laughs> real. It's not a fiction. It's not a, a history or anything like that. Yeah. But there's a section in there where he talks about how much of a hard time he has getting up in the morning. Aww. And he just has like a really tough time and like suggestions for what you can do if you have a hard time getting up in the morning because he knows he has to do it for his job. I mean, the Senate started at like 
like an hour after daybreak kind of thing. Okay. And you had to be there and it's kind of like, you know, but I don't want to get out of bed and there's nothing more satisfying <laughs> on a winter's day than getting back into a warm bed. And it's like, I feel you, man. <laughs> I totally understand where you're coming from on this. And it's it's just, I, I, I love moments like that when you're eating because some, so much of it can seem so distant and so foreign and, you know, almost alien when we're, when we're reading it over that to find something that's so... Relatable, uh, relatable, yeah, and, and and connects you so so closely to someone that lived so long ago is is just a a, a really interesting moment. So, yeah, uh, that's that's something I always try and keep in mind with this stuff is that like yeah, you can look at the big picture political kind of imperialistic <clears throat> puppet master type reasons for these things, but these guys were probably lonely. Yeah, and and that's not the only reason, but it's part of it. Yeah. So, anyways, Cortez was. He was a very smart guy. He was extremely intelligent. Okay. Ruthless, yes. And there's a lot of places in this where we're going to kind of stop and go, now here some people say that this happened while others think this happened, and see two very different pictures of the same man. Okay. And and, and we'll see we'll see someone who is either very pious or not, you know, kind of cynical about it. Mm-hmm. We'll see someone who's very cruel or someone who's very practical. You know, there's there's a lot of sides that way. I'm never going to pretend like this guy isn't an intelligent man. He, whatever he did, it was with deliberate um, okay. intention. Yeah. And while things certainly got out of control at certain points in time, it would have for the best of us. I, I don't think that those, those uh, situations could have been avoided without either hindsight or just incredible luck. Yeah. So uh, I, I do want to stress that, that he is very intelligent. He wanted to get into the mainland. That was his goal in life. He really wanted to get to lead an expedition into the mainland. Another portion of what we're dealing with kind of with Europeans learning that there's a, a whole new continent is that the scope of the possibility of what could be there completely dwarfs the reality of anything that's going on. Yeah. Because, I mean, while there are things that are happening, say you know, seeing the city of Tenochtitlan that are completely beyond what they could even imagine. Yeah. They don't have any frame of reference for that. All they have is their own society, their own civilization. Yeah. And so that's how you get guys like Ponce de Leon searching for the uh, the fountain of youth in yeah. Florida. Yeah. That's happening right now while, while Cortez is on his little farm in his villa. Okay. He's in Florida looking for a fountain of youth because they think that that's a thing that might actually be there, I guess. <laughs> Which sounds crazy, and maybe maybe he didn't actually think it was there. Maybe it was an excuse to get his his journey funded, and he was actually looking for silver or gold. Yeah. Or maybe he thought it was there. But he was able to convince enough people that it might be there to get the money for it. Whether or not he did individually doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> well, that's, good on him, I that's guess. The, that's the takeaway there. I don't care if Ponce de Leon believed that it was there or not. I don't. Yeah. He got the money from people who thought it might be. <laughs> that's crazy. But, I mean, at the same time, there, there, there are all these people looking at this place and going, okay, well, we've had gold mines in, uh, or we've had silver mines in Spain for over a thousand years now, nearly yeah. 1,500 years. We're, it's, it's getting hard to pull it out of the ground. Yeah. The, the gold mines down in Africa have been chugging away for centuries and centuries. They've yeah. had, you know, they're, they're starting to run a little bit dry. We're not looking at a financial crisis here necessarily, but it's a lot more work to get that stuff out than, than it should be. And now we've got people reporting that they're going over there and just picking up pieces of gold. Yeah. Are those exaggerated? Almost certainly. Oh, yeah. But the potential that this place might be completely unworked by 
quote, civilized people. Yeah. Means that the potential for access to precious stones, to precious metals, yeah. might be significantly easier than what you could find at the uh, the accessible world at this point in yeah. time. Never mind the fact that the Silk Road has recently been completely shut down by, well, as we talked about last time, the fall of Constantinople and, yeah. the, and the Ottoman Turks basically shutting down that trade route. Mm-hmm. And that was the big reason that Columbus sailed, right, was to yeah. try and find a different route. Well, now we're looking at it going, well, instead of looking for a better trade route where our wealth is flowing towards the Far East, maybe what we can find is a new source of revenue. Let's 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 be the Far East. Let's, yeah. uh, let's have some of that flow our way exactly not to mention all the raw resources that they were running out of in europe well and i mean they weren't even thinking about it in those terms not yet point in time not really no oh i guess they needed to build all the ships to get over there before they needed the wood to build more ships to get over there correct (laughs) so he really wanted to get into the interior because he figured listen i i maybe it's not gonna happen but if it does happen i want to be the guy that finds it okay there's going to be honor, there's going to be prestige, there's going to be so much money. Yeah. And I'm going to have a good time doing it. Okay, fair enough. That's a that's a reasonable aspiration to have. YOLO. <laughs> I guess. Oh. Yeah, I guess I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> I'm not happy about it. <laughs> so here's the deal. Outside of Spain... The Spanish king basically appointed a governor, governor? of yeah. Cuba to look after local affairs. Okay. And any expedition into the interior would be under that governor, technically, because that would be the place that you would have to fuel up last before going into the interior. Okay. So the king doesn't necessarily have direct command over this. While he can kind of set up expeditions, it's like legally speaking, the governor of Cuba is the oh, okay. one that has... Uh, legal authority over anything that's happening so the governor of uh, cuba at this point is a guy named diego velazquez and everyone kind of knew how ambitious cortez was yeah and it ruffled some feathers not everybody was okay well because velazquez wanted to be that guy too he he did he really wanted to be and there had been a couple of uh forays into south america like the the continent itself yeah uh, at this point um there had been a fairly ill-fated one into the yucatan peninsula where the spanish ran into mayan forces and it did not go so well for them the mayan are going to be a much tougher nut to crack than the aztecs for a lot of different reasons okay but we're not talking about the mines today that can be another day uh but it took them nearly 200 years to completely defeat the mayan oh wow empire yeah it was about 170 years so that being said, you know, people knew that there was somebody there. They knew there were strong forces there. Yeah. They didn't know exactly what was going on, though. And Velazquez wanted to be the guy almost as much as, as Cortez did. The problem was he was already kind of a guy. He was the governor of Cuba. Yeah. And the governor of Cuba doesn't get to really run off and do his own thing. This isn't Star Trek. He's not part of the UA team. <laughs> so he wanted to... Really, all he wanted was to be able to appoint the guy that was going and doing this expedition. Yeah. And there was absolutely precedent for conquering at this point. They had done it in all those islands that they yeah. already owned. So what Velazquez did was he made sure that Cortez's expedition was uh, exploratory only. Okay. He, his, his mandate was basically to go inland and discover what he could about the trade routes 
of whoever was living there and see if there was a way to exploit them. Okay. And Cortez kind of went, okay, fine. But he also managed to get an emergency clause entered into his contract because these are all done by like actual contracts with yeah. seals and stamps and ribbons and all sorts of very oh, they, they loved legal stuff at this point. Sure. And it's all drawn up and, you know, we're not quite at letters of mark, but kind of a similar, <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of a similar idea. He had this, this clause entered that basically said, okay, that's fine. This is exploratory. But if there's an opportunity to either defend myself or to conquer, if it's in the best interest of Spain, if it's clearly in the best interest of Spain, then I am allowed to do that. And this got approved. And Velasquez was not happy about it. Oh, okay. Because he saw it for exactly what it was, which was <laughs> a way to completely get around his mandate. Yeah. But the the current king of Spain, Charles V, who was actually a, a Holy Roman Emperor at this point in time, but he was also king of Spain. Okay. There's some messy stuff going on with Habsburgs <laughs> over there right now. Not getting into those I've guys. I've heard a little bit about this. Not getting into those guys right now. That's, but anyway. That's complicated. So he had this he had this whole thing set up. Velazquez went ahead and ordered a replacement for, for Cortez. It was his own guy that he wanted to take care of it. And Cortez had heard about it. And he wasn't happy about it. Mm-hmm. And without pointing too many fingers here, it seems, it seems that Cortez's brother-in-law may have had the replacement killed uh-oh he may have put a hit out on him <laughs> um, and that guy did not have the opportunity to go on the expedition he he couldn't join them he couldn't join he was not available <laughs> he had to politely decline otherwise indisposed he was being disposed velazquez was furious yeah which makes sense yeah ordered the arrest of cortez which also makes sense. But Cortez had finished fueling his ships. And by fueling, I, I, I keep saying fueling like they're, you know, sticking the gas pump handle in there and, <laughs> and, and watching and the wait, numbers tick by. waiting for five days. In reality, what they're doing is loading it up with on barrels of fresh water. And, fresh water and uh, preserved food. Yeah. Those are the... Salted pork. Yeah, those are the killers on these uh, these journeys. It's, I, I mean, the, the boats that they're boats that, that says something about what i think of them the ships that they're using at this point in time they're not good okay they're bad they're tiny i mean i mean christopher columbus took three ships with him across the atlantic and back yeah. and he lost one of them he lost oh. his flagship oh i didn't even know that yeah he didn't even make it back on his flagship they're not good ships all right i mean compared to what they're going to be using a century after this yeah they're Rowboats. They're terrible. And they don't have any room for any provisions. Yeah. So just getting across is a really difficult proposition at this point in time. By the time you get there, you are running out of everything. Yeah. And you're also probably really sick from things like scurvy, which aren't well understood at this point in time. Yeah. So the opportunity to eat fresh food for a couple of days and get all your fresh water and preserved food stocked up is vital. Yeah. So the Cortez expedition included 11 ships. They all managed to get out of the port at Cuba before uh, Cortez was arrested, which legally made him a mutineer. Okay. So he was on the run from the law, actually, when he, <laughs> when he set out for the mainland. Cortez was very ambitious, and he wasn't willing to let little things like petty feuds and, I don't know, murders or whatever stop him. <laughs> he was going to do what he was destined to do. Yeah. He had a very strong sense of, of purpose, I guess is one way to put that. There were about 630 Spaniards along with him. Okay. 30 of those were crossbowmen. 
12 of them were carrying arquebuses, which are very, very, very primitive firearms. There are also, you know, a couple of cannons and things like that. But we're talking like, I would not want to be a firearm operator at this point in time because you're likely to blow your own arm off as you are to hurt the other guy. Exactly. But there were firearms along for this, uh, for this expedition. Okay. There is, and again, here's that theme, an uncertain number of native Cuban, uh, the, the people were named Arawaks. I feel like I've heard that one before too. Yeah, it's, it was familiar to me as well. And a couple of Africans is how that's put. Okay. No numbers on those. No. And it, yeah, it's, it's kind of messy because this is a thing that you see come up a lot in histories, especially when numbers are, are involved. You nev- never trust numbers on history. If it's more than 100 years old, I would not trust a single number on anything ever. Yeah. And even then, you get conflicting reports. It's just that there's a little bit less latitude to yeah. to bullshit about it in the past 100 years or so. <laughs> but even, okay, for example, the Battle of Thermopylae. How many people were there on the Greek side? Oh my god, there was like 3,000 or something? 7,000. 7,000? How okay. many do we hear about? The 300. The 300 Spartans. They were the smallest force yeah. there. Well, and I mean, they had brought their own men along. There were more Spartans than just the 300 Spartans. Yeah. It's just that the the Spartan soldiers are kind of an elite class, and those are the ones that got the uh, the legends about them. So yeah. we, we, they, they constantly underrepresent certain numbers to make forces look more formidable than they actually are. History is written by the, the winners. Yeah, and I, I mean... They want to make their story sound better. But it's not even that. I mean, that that is that is one way to look at it, but there is also the, the fact that even the losers are writing about armies without counting their entire baggage trains or support mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, supply lines are the death of any battlefield. Yeah. I, you know, when you think about uh, an invading army entering another country... That's all well and good, but how do you feed all those guys? Yeah. How, who does their laundry? Who mm-hmm. takes care of them when they're sick? Who looks after any material that's uh, that's broken down? you got to take a small nation with you to yeah, you're, you're, take you're over a nation. Looking, you're usually looking at about three times the number of people as are actually listed as fighting men. Yeah. But those aren't listed. And they're yeah. not listed by either side is kind of the point that I'm trying to make there. Okay. Uh, similarly, a lot of these people that they're bringing along are seen as support staff rather than actual members of the expedition yeah. and aren't counted in any of the official numbers. Yeah. So anyways, we can stop harping on that stuff quite so much. I feel like we've maybe made our point. <laughs> they fell on a piece of very good luck really early on. Okay. On an island called uh, Cozumel, they picked up a shipwrecked Spaniard. This guy was named uh, Geronimo de Aguilar, and Senor Aguilar had picked up some Mayan in his time. Oh! He had spent quite a bit of time, actually, with the Mayans, uh, or, or rather with nations that were per- peripheral to the Mayans. That spoke... Nah, no, no, no. Those are the Aztecs that you're thinking of. Oh, crap. Yeah, the Aztecs are the ones that speak uh, Nahua. Nahua. Yeah. I, I actually don't know if the Mayan language has a better name. Probably. I would imagine so. Uh, yeah. I didn't stumble across it, and unfortunately, I didn't even think about it until right now. But that's how these things go. It, it, gets, <laughs> it gets incredibly complicated, because you think of these empires as monoliths, and they're absolutely not. Yeah. They're full of dozens of different nations. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Monsieur da, or Monsieur, <laughs> Senor Aguilar spoke a little Mayan, which is great news for them. Yeah. Because further on down the line, when they stopped off in the Yucatan Peninsula, they picked up a local woman. 
And this is another one of those like really unfortunate parts of this narrative. I don't know what her name was. I found about eight different names, um, none of which were probably her actual birth name. Yeah. And most of them were kind of variations on they gave her a Spanish name and then this other name for her is the phonetic translation in Nahua of the Spanish name. And then the Spanish heard what the Aztecs were calling them or calling her in Nahua and they made a Spanish nickname for it. And it's just this mess of names. Oh. So I'm going to stick with Marina, which was the name that she was baptized under. Okay. Just for convenience's sake and because I don't have a better name to give her, which is... yeah too bad um yeah but we'll stick with marina marina spoke nahua she also spoke mayan oh ooh. so we've got a little uh little chain going on here yeah when uh when they met anyone that spoke nahuan they would geronimo could speak mayan to marina marina could speak nahua to them exactly Already we're doing better than like 98% of the Spaniards that have ever hit the new world. Yeah. Because at least this time when they read out the proclamation of 1513, they can translate it to them. Yeah. They're probably going to be less happy about it now, but at least they'll <laughs> understand. So basically the, uh, the Cortez expedition sailed through the Gulf of Mexico and kind of landed on like the west coast of the Gulf of Mexico. So if you think of, I guess if you think of the, the Gulf of Mexico as like a big circle, just for yep. convenience's sake, they landed at about eight o'clock. Okay. Yeah. That's the best I can do. Yeah. This is, this is an audio uh, medium. <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> and immediately upon landing, they were met by Aztec delegates. Okay. Not delegates from the local tribe. Oh. From Tenochtitlan. So they had been watching. They had certainly heard that they were coming. Okay. And by immediately, I don't mean like they were standing on the shore waiting for them. That would be kind of creepy and weird. And also very <laughs> impressive. But very, very soon after making uh, landfall, they were they were welcomed. And they gave them some gifts and gave them messages of welcome. Cortez decided that the best course of action would be to frighten them with a display of firepower. Oh. And okay. showed them how loud their arquebuses could go. <laughs> Which, I mean... Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, you can communicate through this really roundabout way, but he's trying to deliver a message really quickly, and he doesn't really understand what he's up against. No. He's only got a couple hundred men. Yeah. He has no idea what he's going to be walking into, and sometimes in diplomacy, uh, a strong hand is uh, a very useful yeah, thing, especially a, if you're small, and he is. definitely a tactic. So... I mean, it sounds really machismo and kind of ridiculous, but yeah. I, I don't think it's as ridiculous a move as it sounds. No, um, no, it makes sense. Yeah, so so they, they made landfall, and the first thing that they did was they founded a town okay, called Veracruz, which is Spanish for the True Cross, because they actually landed on uh, uh, Good Friday. Oh, okay. And Veracruz is still a, a province in, yeah. in Mexico. That, that settlement has been there for a very, very long time. This did a couple of things. It founded a settlement on mainland Americas. Yeah. Which is a brand new thing. Yeah. Also under Spanish law, because this is a new settlement, it's no longer under the administration of the Cuban governor. Ah, so Cortez set up his own little safe haven. Yes. And he immediately sent delegates back to Charles V to confirm that this was cool and all. Yeah. That's going to take a while. Yeah. But... As far as he's concerned, that's enough of a safety net that, legally speaking, he's okay now. Yeah. He's in his own jurisdiction. He is. He absolutely is. 
Um, now, did he officially become governor then of Veracruz? Or? Uh, he was appointed commander general, okay. which is a yeah. high enough office that it's kind of... Yeah, he was essentially administrating it. Yeah. So, yeah, finally uh, safe from Velasquez as far as he was concerned. Yeah. The first thing they did was do a little scouting around to figure out what was going on. They found a local settlement called uh, Campoala. It's uh, the Teutonic people. The Teutonic tribe had actually been its own empire at one point in time long before this. They were kind of in decline at this point in time, but the Teutonic Empire had been its own thing. Why do I associate that name with Germanic people? You're thinking of Teutonic. Okay. That's T-E-U-T-O-N-I-C. This is T-O-T-O-N-A-C. Okay. Totonac. Okay. Yeah, Totonac. And the first thing he did, because it was actually a fairly large city, considering the time, we're looking at maybe as many as 20,000 people. Yeah. Cortez basically went, why are you giving all of your stuff to those Aztec guys? (laughs) Like, cut it out. And they're like, well, he's more powerful than us. And he's like, check out our arquebuses. Stop (laughs) giving them stuff. How about we be your friends or whatever? Yeah. And so they, they thought about it and they were like, you're right. We are giving too much of their stuff to our to the Aztec, and so oh, five tax collectors showed up and they kidnapped them. <laughs> Cortez is already stirring stuff up. More Aztec delegates show up, yeah, to speak to Cortez actually, and they are bearing <laughs> gifts of intricately woven cloth and mm-hmm. gold and silver, and they basically say. Is there any like you seem like a guy that knows how to get things done? Is there anything you can do to get our tax collectors back? And Cortez says, this "Stuff's all really, it's all really nice looking. You know what? I think there's something I can do." And he goes and he busts the tax collectors out and lets them go. And he's like, "How you know? There you go. Keep the gifts coming. This is great." Yeah. And the diplomats say, "You know, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Make yourself at home. Also, never come to Tenochtitlan. Plan. Seriously, it's really nice to have you here." <laughs> and at this point, Car- Cortez makes this this statement to his to all of his people and basically says, "Like, do you see this? Do you see how impressed they are with us? They basically think we're gods here. Like, there's nothing we can't do." Yeah, he's in reality counting his chickens before they're hatching well i mean in reality they're practicing proper diplomacy by not sending a war party right away they're yeah. speaking to him they're being yeah. polite with him they're angry at him but they're not necessarily letting him know that yeah that's called diplomacy yep if he was in spain and a viennese diplomat showed up and did the exact same thing he would recognize it for what it was yeah he is far too blinded by his conception of who these people are to recognize what's happening here. yeah he's not getting it so he's uh, he's still in Capuala. He recruits about 40 warriors to his cause. He also recruits about 200 uh, workers, laborers. They're the people dragging the cannons now. <laughs> but he's already making waves like within the empire because all of these people who would never think to question Tenochtitlan or any of the Mexica are all of a sudden going like, this is new maybe this is a shot and all of these sort of not even that long-standing prejudices are kind of coming to the surface where they really had no recourse before because remember they only consolidated the the aztec really only consolidated less than 100 years before this yeah so that civil war is starting to brew back up there's some simmering uh discontent there yeah and i mean in reality they're not a large force the spanish i mean yeah they're fairly small but they have a couple of things that the aztec don't 
things like metal armor yeah or metal weapons in general people overplay the cannons and the arquebuses in my opinion they're impressive they're 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 showy but they're not very accurate they're very impressive i don't think that they would change the course of a battle at this point no not really i i mean they they would help don't get me wrong but it probably takes at least a minute to reload one of those arquebuses if not longer i have no idea what the reload time is at least a minute yeah like i'm sorry even if you had a sling like a like a bare bones like their like crossbows are probably age. way more effective at this point. Even those can be slow to to reload. That's what I'm saying. Like if the if the Aztec had just basic slings, like the, oh, the strip yeah. of the strip of cloth with the hard stone, yeah, way more effective than the arquebuses or the crossbows. Except that they have metal armor. Yeah, but I'm just saying, shot for shot, yeah, not that <laughs> useful. They're better on defense than they are on offense. Yeah, yeah, which is not a bad thing to be. Yep, but we'll leave it there. They keep on moving. They uh, arrive next in a, uh, a region called uh, Tlaxcala. And it's, you know, they start tangling with the locals. There's three big battles in the course of a couple of days. And Cortez realizes that these guys are way more powerful than the Teutonics had been. And what he does is he's, he keeps capturing warriors in battle. Yeah. He takes them in back and he gets Marina to tell them, we're letting you go. We don't want to fight. And he lets them go. And eventually the command gets the idea that like, okay, well, maybe we should hold off a little bit. Yeah. They don't really trust him, but we'll, we'll hear what he has to say kind of thing. Yeah. And they sit down and they do a lot of talking and Cortez just talks to them. And the Tlaxcala were traditionally against the Aztecs. Like they were, they had fought pretty hard against uh, Tenochtitlan during the uh, the Wars of Unification. Okay. They saw the Spanish as an opportunity, similar to what you had had with the Teutonics, and they decided, you know what? Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll help you guys. We'll give you some provisions. We'll uh, give you some warriors to, to go along with you. Yeah, we'll, we'll help you out. Yeah. There are four leaders. Like, they had sort of like a small council of leaders. All four leaders, according to Spanish accounts at least, uh, converted to Catholicism. Okay. Whether or not that's true is debatable, or even if they did, how much it actually meant to them is also debatable. Uh, this is something you see quite a bit about five or about a thousand years before this with Germanic tribes and the spread of Christianity. Or oh yeah, they they were in Europe. Yeah, they were Christians. Yeah, kind of. Well, what? See, that's the thing about about trying to spread Christianity is the problem isn't telling people about the Christian God and uh his message and what he can do for you that's easy that's fine they're all like oh cool yeah i'll pray to that guy too yeah it's getting them to give up all their other all the other ones that's an issue that's always been the problem with spreading christianity to polytheistic societies yeah so you're running into a similar problem there where maybe they were baptized maybe they accepted christ but whether they gave up all of their other aztec gods is um it probably not is no. my guess. Yeah. Although Cortez may have thought that he had done... He did good. He got it. <laughs> he may have even been impressed Check. with how easy it was. <laughs> the Aztec diplomats have actually been kind of staying with the convoy at this point. Okay. They're still talking to Cortez. They're offering him gifts to go away, basically. Yeah. He's not catching the message. He's just being like, hey, this is great. Keep um, him coming. Keep him coming. Finally, they basically say, listen, man... 
I know you're heading north through Flax Colin uh, territory. We just want you to come south through the city called uh, Cholula. And that's under actual like Aztec Empire control. It's really okay. well locked down. Cortez may have thought that it seemed a little bit dangerous, like tactically, to go to Tenochtitlan through there. And he, he did have his eye, by the way, at this point on Tenochtitlan. You don't spend that long in the Aztec Empire before you figure out where all the wealth is going. Yeah. So he's very much focused on that. They offer him, you know, another thousand Tlaxcalan warriors if he goes through Cholula. They offer them guys to carry all of his stuff. They offer him fresh yeah. provisions. He's like, fine, I guess I will go through there. He had been planning to go through this, like the, the place to the north. It was Tlaxcalan, but it was... it. It was basically, during the Civil War, it had been a fourth power. Like, it was the fourth most powerful place. Okay. But it had declined to enter the alliance. Okay. And the dynamic within the Aztec Empire was a little weird, but what they ended up doing is rather than actually taking them over, they decided to keep the Tlaxcalans perpetually as a war uh, state, basically because ritual dictated that you needed war prisoners for for various rituals oh okay so they just refused to make peace with them and just took war prisoners from there oh yeah it's it's real messy well i mean i guess the same sort of thing was happening in crete way back when yeah that's that's true still kind of a terrible thing to do yep yep and that's okay to admit (laughs) yeah it really really is so cortez goes okay fine i'll go through chalupa and he gets to Cholula, and Cholula is a temple city. Okay. There's virtually no standing army. Cholula is also home to a pyramid that, by volume, is larger than any of the pyramids at Giza. It's not taller, okay. but it, it's at a, a much more gradual incline, so the base is much wider. Yeah. And if you, like, took the, the volume of it, it's the biggest pyramid. Okay. It's massive. Is and... it one of the pyramids I've heard about? Uh, it's generally called the Pyramid of Cholula, so okay. maybe not. It's it doesn't get a lot of love, which is too bad. Okay, I mean it's it's way bigger than say Machu Picchu, but yeah. Machu Picchu gets way more press. Yeah, uh, or sorry, Chichen Itza is the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Anyways, doesn't matter because the thing is, he gets to Cholula, and everything has been relatively good so far, but everything is going to change after we get to Cholula. So I'm thinking we're going to break here. We've got Cortez on his way to Tenochtitlan. We've got Montezuma not even really in the picture except from a very distant diplomatic setting. Yeah. We've got kind of an amicable relationship going on, but this is clearly heading nowhere good. (laughs) Not even just because of what we know now, but because it doesn't really seem like Cortez is going to stop for anything, and that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So I think that's a really good place to wrap up for today. And uh, we'll come back next time and pick it up in the city of Cholula. All right. Sounds good. It's clear that Cortes and his men had absolutely no idea what they were getting into. The Aztec Empire was enormous, wealthy, powerful, and dangerous. Cortes was obviously convinced that he was more than strong enough to deal with any threats, but as we've discussed, he was wrong. Up until now, he's been, at best, a catalyst for internal Aztec issues, and at worst, a pawn that's going to be destroyed at any moment. So what changed? How did such a small force manage to topple such a powerful empire so quickly? We'll discuss all of this in the next episode, upon August 15th. 
As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.